interesting. I think when people think of Japan, they think of either that or the robots and the manga. Yeah. And, the, and, the, <laughs> and so it's so extreme, but most of the people are a mix of all of those things. So they、mm-hmm. may have this serenity and, you know, in parts of their lives while they're on their phone and they're in traffic and they're listening to their iPhones and they're texting at the same time and they're talking to Siri and they're doing this. And so it's, it's all、yeah. of it. When you come to Japan, some people might be disappointed because it's not as serene as they thought. Welcome to the Geopats Podcast, where we talk to people that have a few different cultures in them, around them, and running through their hearts and minds. And we talk to them about books, coffee, podcasting, creating things, and language. This is a very special book show that we have for you today. I'm pretty much done with my part because Tatiana from a previous book episode is going to take over. Tatiana, how are you? Hi, Steph. I'm good. And hi to home, basically. Yeah, because you're, you're in Goa, India, and I'm in, I'm in Berlin, Germany. <laughs> exactly. And Berlin is my hometown. So, what do you have in store for us today? I spoke to Yuki from the Book Nerd Tokyo, who is、uh, Japanese, but actually she's more American. Very interesting story. And we spoke about specific one Japanese book, which is Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto. So, Tachanya did this interview. And so she's going to take it over from here. So let's listen to their conversation. Hi, Yuki. Hi, Tatiana. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. This is very exciting for me. I was so thrilled because I read a couple of Japanese books last year. But one so stood out, which is a book that we're going to discuss today. And I was so thrilled that you agreed not just to come on the podcast, but actually to that specific book as well, which is Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto. Absolutely. I'm always happy to discuss this book. Where can people find you? I'm at Book Nerd Tokyo on Instagram. And I also have a blog, BookNerdTokyo.com, where I write about things that won't fit in my Instagram captions, <laughs> which are pretty long already. <laughs> Those are the two places. But also, you write your captions in Japanese and English. So, obviously, I do. It's, it's only half the space technically that you then have. Oh, yeah, that is true. That is always why I'm running out of space. Yeah, <laughs> I, I try to make a point to do that, even if the books aren't translated in the other language, whichever. Sometimes I write about English books that aren't translated in Japanese. But I try to make a point about writing in both languages for all captions because that's kind of. My point is, you, know, you don't want to pick and choose what information you're, you're sending to a certain group of people, and then、yeah. you're sending different information to a different group of people. So I try to keep that as, as equal as possible. And also, it's just the way that I think. I think in both languages and write in both、okay. languages. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be as true to, to who I am and how I communicate daily. Now, while you were born in Japan and are currently living in Japan, Your family actually brought you over to the US, Los Angeles, when you were four, where you've lived for a big chunk of your life and especially very formative years as well. Tell us a little bit about your life between Japan and US. Sure. So, my parents took our family to LA when I was four. My brother was one, and they've since settled there. So, my family's still there. I consider LA to be my home, no matter where I live, how far I'm away. When people ask me where I'm from, I always say LA. I've been in Tokyo for about six years now, and that's due to the man that I married is from Tokyo. And、yeah. I was born here, but because I didn't know anything about this city, as our relationship progressed and the, the idea of getting together and okay, where would we live when that came up, I was living in New York at the time, but I happily <laughs> suggested that we live in Tokyo. I just really wanted to get to know this city. My parents are from Tokyo. My grandparents lived in Tokyo. So we had visited as children, but never as an adult. So I really wanted to live here and kind of get to know my roots and understand where my parents came from and,、yeah. and learn the culture. The book is called Kitchen by Banana、yes. Yoshimoto. Is, is that the same title in Japanese as well? It is. It's kitchen. And there's a Japanese word for kitchen, which is daidokoro, but it's interesting that she went with kitchen, the English word for、mm-hmm. it, which, which is what everyone calls kitchens now. Everyone in Japan calls kitchens kitchen. They don't call them daidokoro. So it's, it's a part of the modern lexicon. Okay. 
Now, this particular book was actually released in 1988, which seems ages ago now, but the fact is actually that when you read it, it sounds both in terms of language and content. It, yeah, such a current book, actually. Wow. Um, yes. Do you want to give a quick summary of the book? Sure. Kitchen is about a young woman named Mikage who lost her parents when she was younger and she was raised by her grandmother. And the story begins when her grandmother passes away and she finds herself completely alone and lost. And that's when a friend from college named Yuichi invites her over for tea just to, you know, chat. And then through a series of events, she ends up staying with them for a while. She ends up moving out of her old apartment that she lived in with her grandmother and and moving in with Yuichi and his mother, Eriko. And the book is called Kitchen because the kitchen is the one place in all of the world that she's not completely overtaken by sadness mm -hmm. and she's able to forget her sorrows. And she knows that Yuji and Eriko, his mother, are good people because she loves their kitchen. Their kitchen is just perfect according to Mikage. And with their help and through their communication and the time spent together, she starts to find her way back to life. It's about the human connection and the relationship with a family that is not your own, but becomes possibly um, your own family. For Mikagi, I think it's kitchen and food and cooking that's really her refuge from all the bad things that are happening to her in terms of losing all the family she has. But you don't want to mention Eriko? <laughs> 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 no, I think that Eriko is a key player. I think what happens yes. to Eriko is something that we maybe don't talk about. Okay. But Eriko is such a profound presence in Mikage's life because Yuichi introduces her as his mother. Yes. Um, but upon getting to know her just in the first couple of days of being together, she realizes that um, Eriko was, was not always his mother, but was his father before. Correct. Yes. And was married to... Um, his mother, but his mother, Yuji's mother, passed away. And I think that that really broke Eriko's heart. And she decided that she would live as a woman and started dressing that way and completely changing her life. And, and Yuji believes now of her as a mother and a woman. And so that I think was very much ahead of its time um, yeah. that this this presence was just such a completely normal part of their lives. Yes. And quite frankly, to me, when I first read this, it is mentioned like in a, in a side note almost. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really not the main topic of the book at all, but it was such a revelation. I had to read that sentence, I think two, three times. Like, <laughs> am I reading this right? Um, right. Because considering that it was released in 1988 and, Still today, it's in many, many countries in the world that is by no means something normal. Or um, I think if I would go around and say, by the way, my mom used to be my dad, that is a very, very uh, mind-blowing thing, mm -hmm. actually. How is it handled in Japan, the topic of either gay but also transgender? It's really fascinating. I'm not sure that that one point was the reason why this book was such a phenomenon when it first came out. It is kind of just a side note. Yes. Um, by the way, it's still a very special um, relationship, but it's definitely not the focal point of the novel. And I think no. what Banana Yoshimoto, her point was when I, re I read an interview where people asked her why she created a character like Eriko. And she just said, oh, there were just a lot of people around me who were like that. <laughs> I think she grew up in a very, she did, she, her father is a very famous writer and philosopher really or was. And so she grew, she did grow up with artists and creatives and brilliant minds around her. Mm. I think she grew up in a non-typical Japanese family household. Yeah. And I think so that's why her reply was just simply, oh, I just had friends like that. So I didn't see why I shouldn't include them in the novel. For her it was um, normal. For her, it was absolutely normal. She wasn't trying to prove a point mm -hmm. or she wasn't trying to make some kind of statement in 1988. Um, <laughs> and I think the relevance of it now is, is astounding, actually. But what was really interesting was in her interview, she said that the book really took off in ways that she didn't expect. And it was read by people that she hadn't necessarily written it for. And who mm. she'd written it for were, were the people who 
were born maybe extra sensitive with an extra sensitivity where they felt things more and they were they were hurt more deeply and just living in society every single day was just such a fight and it was so lonely and it was heartbreaking and so she wrote the novel for those people saying that yeah even in those moments there are ways to find joy and there are ways to get a good laugh mm. out of something that happened that day or there are ways to you know really just just enjoy the heck out of life and <laughs> and those were the those were the people that she wrote the novel for so she was really stunned when it was read by everyone you know including people who were not necessarily feeling those things and that's why it was criticized in many ways and yeah she said she was only 24 when the when the novel came out so for a while she said she just wanted to disappear after that and the novel was so huge and she got so much for it good and bad mm-hmm. that she just couldn't bear for a while she said yeah and i can imagine because Kitchen was her first novel, and uh, as you said, it got so much attention that there was actually a term phrased, which is banana mania, which mm-hmm. is really yeah. sort of what broke out after her book became such a sensation, quite unexpected. Now, the reason why I brought it up is I love the book, and I know that you quite like Banana Yoshimoto's work in general as well. What makes it about Kitchen that you particularly like? I think it's such a slim novel and you don't expect to find a world in there that you do. I didn't read it until I was probably in my 20s because I knew that people were talking about it in such a profound, this changed my life kind of way that I didn't think that my Japanese comprehension would be able to pick up on those nuances. Even though I could read Japanese, I didn't think that I could understand the depth of feeling of the Japanese people. And and so it wasn't until much later upon many rereads that I finally grasped what it was all about. But I think a lot of her novels are about death and about loss, but it's not about the death and the loss as it is about the recovery from it and the trying to regain yourself and your sense of self and trying to get your life back. And I think, you know, anyone who's experienced any kind of devastation, any kind of time in their life that they know that that's the time that they were the saddest and that's the time that broke them, but that was also the time that made them strong, mm. made them who they are. I think her works speak to those people, especially I think at Kitchen speaks to those people because Mikage is just an ordinary girl. She's not yes. a super anything. She's just a regular girl with a close relationship with her grandma and she doesn't really have a lot of friends and you know, she didn't really have any direction in her life, but she yeah. lost her grandma and lost everything. Yes. And so I think for her to start to find direction, start to find a career path in food and cooking, and that came only because of her cooking for Yuichi and his mother, yes. people she cared about, and she learned about cooking, what cooking did and what food did to, to save them, the three of them, mm-hmm. and all the times that they shared meals Um, and chatted and laughed and that was part of her healing process so I think the fact that she was just this college student with no real direction but for her to have experienced such such great loss and then rising from that there's something about that that I think is is hope giving and hopeful to the reader and I think that's what I I was uh, moved by And I absolutely agree because to everybody who thinks that this is a dark and very sad and crying tissue kind of book, it really Mm -hmm. isn't because while while there's so many very tragic things happening in terms of her losing literally the last family she has and there's a few more Mm -hmm. things, but it keeps coming back as being a very hope-giving book. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, probably at a certain age, we all have lost somebody Or if you're going through that right now, I think this book is fantastic because it really gives you hope that there, albeit there being sad and and terrible Mm -hmm. things happening, it can be still a wonderful life ahead. Right. As such, it's a very universal concept and I don't find Mm -hmm. it a very Japanese book. Would you agree? Right. I agree. I think the thing that made Banana Yoshimoto so fascinating to Japanese readers is that her stories are not very Japanese at all. Hmm. Just in terms of references, she makes references to Linus and his blanket and the TV show Bewitched and Helen Keller and, you know, the Brothers Grimm and as just everyday conversation pieces. And her novels, they could be set anywhere. She doesn't talk about very Japanese things. She talks about a college, a university that they attend, but that could be anywhere. And she talks about 
you know, inns that they go to for work, um, restaurants, things like that. But there's nothing very, there's no like, oh, an overlooking Mount Fuji. And there's no, (laughs) there's no, no depictions of very Japanese icon type things. Mm -hmm. And also the, the reason why the novels struck a chord with Japanese readers is because it's not very Japanese, but they still felt it so deeply, which gave Japanese readers the idea that "Hmm, maybe, you know, this out of place novel, this kind of fish out of water novel strikes a chord with me. Maybe it's okay that I don't fit into society, fit into every aspect of society. Maybe it's okay that I mourn in different ways, or I love Mm. in different ways, or I have different parents, or I don't have friends. I'm not social. I don't know what I want to do. And that was okay. Mm -hmm. And to have it go on to be so universally loved. I don't know that it's something the author set out to do because she writes in Japanese. It's not that she writes in English and she writes for global audiences specifically, but I think just generally the things that she is drawn to and the things that she writes about are universal topics. There are a lot of them about spirituality. They're about growing up. They're about gender roles. They're Mm. about family. They're a lot of them are about loss, about death. And so I think, and how, how to overcome loss, I think over and over again as well. Right. Um, Exactly. Would you say Kitchen is already a classic, even though it's only came out about now 30 years ago or, Does it belong now to that new wave of books? Because when you said that it's a lot about Japanese people discovering that I can be different and still belong to society and find people who love me, etc. This sounds very much like Convenience Store Woman, which is about a woman who feels that she's so different from everybody else that she goes and works in a convenience store to basically to find a very simple set of rules where she can fit in. I think Kitchen is definitely a classic already. Um, a lot of the, like Sayaka Murata and all of, a lot of the modern authors, they look to Banana Yoshimoto as kind of a teacher and a guide and someone who's paved the way. And these are the books that they read growing up. So yeah, Kitchen and Yoshimoto is in a kind of a genre all her own. A lot of the modern writers grew up reading her. Mm-hmm. And I think now they're expressing their own take on society through Convenience Store Woman, which, you know, in 1988, the convenience store wasn't even a thing. So <laughs> this is definitely the modern version of the topics that I uh. think Yoshimoto touched on. Hello and welcome to The Keep. My name is Dylan C. And I'm the Night Reader. Would you join me? Mind your head, I've a lamp lit through the doorway. There, on the round table. Go on, have a seat. I've prepared a wonderful story for you. I like to take a look at inspiration as a whole and what moves us as humans towards physical action. My literary analysis and inspirational podcast is about just that. It's full of new and upcoming artists, writers, young influencers, and long-standing figures of motivation. I move through difficult texts and interpret them in a way that anyone can understand, as well as adding my personal flavor of voiced characters and musical themes to the mix. This is a show where you can educate yourself, learn about yourself, feel inspired to follow your own passion, share your writings, poetry, relax, and enjoy some stories. The Roundtable has enough room for all those who are willing. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Also follow me on Instagram, and I welcome you to join me on the Night Reader Podcast. I wish I could tell you everything is okay. I wish I could comfort you and tell you there is nothing to fear. But I can't. And if you are really being honest, that's not what you want. You want to be scared. You like being scared. So, join me, your elusive host. 
and I will tell you why you're haunted by so many monsters. Scary Stories is a bi-weekly podcast about the psychology of fear and the stories we use to explain it. So, take a seat and let me tell you about this thing that happened to a friend of a friend of a friend. Find it everywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, obviously, kitchen is a title and kitchen and food for Mikage is such an important point, as you mentioned. She discovered it throughout the book, but I think subconsciously she knew right from the beginning that uh, kitchen is her safe haven in a way. When her grandmother passes away and she spends the days and nights in her apartment where she lived with her grandmother, she finds that the only place where she can actually find rest and, and sleep is in the kitchen next to the fridge. So I think She knew that subconsciously, but throughout the book, she discovers that kitchen and cooking is something that really can give her peace and help her survive in a way. How important are kitchens in Japan homes or food for Japanese people? Is that a big deal? Oh, they love food. <laughs> Japanese people love food so much. You turn on the TV at any hour of the day and you will find a television show about food, about trying restaurants, about traveling for food, about making food, cooking shows, food, 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 <laughs> There's so much food. And the quality of food, the, the local food, foods depending on regions, there are all these specialties depending on mm -hmm. which prefecture you're in, which part of Japan you're in. And so food is definitely a part of their lives. It's, you can't talk about Japanese culture without talking about the food. Um, so naturally kitchens are an important part of producing those foods and because slow living and living, you know, outside of the city, it's, you can't really experience it in Tokyo, but once you <laughs> leave Tokyo and you're outside of the city, you, you have an appreciation for a slower kind of life and people like to keep their kitchens clean and minimal and with the best tools, not the newest gadgets, not mm -hmm. the latest gadgets, but knowing how to use the iron frying pan that's been used for decades and decades, given to you from your grandmother and your mother, things like that. So I think, yeah, yeah kitchens are, are places where people connect. And yeah, I love our kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I love the kitchen and I, I understand uh, Mikage wanting to just lay out her sleeping bag and sleep by the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> there's something there's the hum of the refrigerator and it's working and it's working for you even when you're not and you don't feel like working you don't feel like getting up it's still humming along and keeping your food cold and every time I turn on the stovetop to boil water I'm just like wow that's just amazing <laughs> you are amazing because coffee is my thing obviously for my Instagram accounts all I do is yeah. drink coffee but yeah my, my making coffee every morning is sustains me <laughs> Obviously, Japanese food and American food very different, but the the importance that is given is that similar, or do you find it very different? I find it very different. I don't think I had a palate until I, okay <laughs> when, I, when I first came to Japan. I I mean, I could understand obviously this is tasty, but it was you know I grew up on hamburgers and, and fries and Doritos and pizza, and but my mom did a really. We lived in LA, which when I was growing up, there wasn't as many Japanese food or Asian food grocery stores around. So I think my mom really did a great job of using what she could find in the local grocery store and turning it into a Japanese, like the tonkatsu that was in the book. Things like that. She, she made those for us and she made the miso soups and she tried to really give us an idea of what Japanese food was like. So we grew up, my brothers and I grew up loving Japanese food. But when I came to Japan and I would go to Kyoto and I would go to these <laughs> inns where they, like in the, in the novel where every single dish is tofu. <laughs> There are just 20 different dishes of tofu and you're like, wow, okay. But then you, now I could eat a meal of 20 dishes of tofu and come home completely satisfied and moved by the experience and oh, wow. wondering, yeah. And you start to understand how things are made and how things are arranged and you appreciate the seasonal. And seasons are a big thing here. So mm -hmm. you eat what's in season, um, whether it's fish, vegetables, fruit, nuts and berries and everything. Uh, this is something I didn't know in California. The produce 
that are in season are the most delicious. They, they really <laughs> they taste the great. They taste the best, and they're they're great. The cabbage in winter is so sweet, and the in summer it's the it's the tomatoes and the cucumbers. And you just because the four seasons are so distinct here, mm-hmm. um, you can't. No matter how ignorant, blissfully ignorant a life you try to lead, you can't ignore the fact that it's spring. And the- <laughs> Booming and the whatever is our in season, and then summer comes, and it's it's summer. You can't get a decent cabbage now because that's for winter. And you really do get an education in food and what's in season. And cooking with what's in season is not only delicious; it's better economically. It's yeah. cheaper, you know. So yeah, it's definitely an education. I've gotten a food education living in Japan. But also a lot of what you're describing sounds very sustainable life, actually. You know, the idea that instead of outfitting your kitchen with uh, all new equipment, you use a very good iron pan and use it for your entire life. Or eating what's currently locally in season and grown outside the city. Whereas what you, again, I haven't been to the States, what you hear from the States isn't really that. It's a lot of plastic and I want always the new and latest and it doesn't matter how long it lasts, actually. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think, um, well, I grew up in LA and we would go to the farmer's market all the time. So I think I grew up being around great produce and great fruit, mm-hmm. um, especially the things I miss most, the navel oranges and the grapefruit and everything, all the all the fruit I miss now that I, I grew up and avocados that I grew up eating in California. But it's true. I think the Japanese people, not everyone, because everything is starting to be obviously, hey, Siri, do this and hey, hey Siri, do that. And people are able to Oh, my Siri just <laughs> just activated. But um, <laughs> but there are so many gadgets and and technology is so advanced mm-hmm. here that you could easily outfit your entire kitchen and make it automatic. But I think the more that happens, the more people are being awakened to the hey, let's go back to the old Japanese ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't so bad back then when we used the same dishes every single day, but they were good. You know, ceramic plates and yeah. dinnerware. So people have gotten, I think, more interested in in ceramics, just sustainable, not buying everything at the 100 yen store, um, <laughs> not buying disposable. But I think the Japanese are so, so discouraging their amount of packaging and what they do. They package every single cookie in every single box and things like that. So I think there's there's both. There's the extreme packaging and wipe a countertop with a piece of tissue and tissue paper and then you toss that and that just I'm I'm sitting here just like shaking when I see people do that at the same time there are the people who want to eat just what's in season and and without much fanfare just eating what's good and what's basic because it's the most nutritious and because it's the most tasty not not just to not to be you know not to live a monk life monk style life but just because when you think about it it really is most delicious or yeah. you don't need you don't need to add all the seasoning when you can just do a little bit of salt or a little bit of miso or it really does taste good yeah but i think you do have to you need to experience that you need to have experienced people show you the way and say you know that carrot that you that all you know how to do is peel and just eat as a carrot stick <laughs> you know like this, there are some ways that you can prepare them where you know you, you can actually enjoy them in different flavors and different textures and the californian comes and wow oh my god and never are you serious <laughs> <laughs> yeah no. uh, yeah I, I've definitely had my eyes open. I think the two things living in Japan that I've learned the most are my reading life and my cooking and eating life, my food life, definitely. What are other Japanese authors or books that you would recommend if somebody wants to start looking at Japanese literature? Mm, I think this is not a new book by any means, but The Housekeeper and the Professor by Yoko Ogawa is something that I do recommend. Yoko Ogawa is a an author that I recommend. Her Most recent one is The Memory Police, which got a lot of press in the States and I think in the English-speaking community. And that was a great book as well. But The Housekeeper and the Professor is something I truly recommend. It's beautiful. Hiromi Kawakami is another author. I'm trying to remember because her, her novel has two titles. It's not The Briefcase. I have one lying here that I think by her, Miss Ice Sandwich. Oh, her? okay. There are two Kawakamis. One is oh. Mieko and one is Hiromi. 
Miyako Kawakami is she is one of the hottest writers in Japan right now. It's unfortunate that her only book in translation is Miss I Sandwich, but this spring her big Akutagawa Prize winning novel Breasts and Eggs is coming out in English and she is one of the most talked about young writers in Japan right now. So I do okay. recommend if you want to really, really go contemporary, I definitely recommend her. Mm-hmm. Um, Hiromi Kawakami still writes great novels, but she's more just well-established. She and Yoko Gawa, they're kind of in the same generational category. Their books are, yeah, they, they run the gamut. They, they're somewhere quiet and beautiful love stories and others are wild and, and raging and kind of disturbing. So I think those are authors that you might explore until you find someone that you enjoy. Yeah. And then, yeah, Convenience Store Woman. And then there's another Picnic in the Storm by Yukiko Motoya. Those are modern novels, but I think I'm not sure that they would give you the most accurate depiction of Japan today okay. because I think they're more on the odd side. Convenience Store Woman was a bestseller here. It won a lot of literary prizes, but it also shocked a lot of people because it was so unconventional yeah. and out there <laughs> and people couldn't really understand it. Even Japanese people, they were creeped out by it, but they connected to it, they related to it, and it just it caused all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of havoc in the country. And I think that's why it, it's become such a conversation piece. But I don't think that it's a very accurate depiction of just when you think of Japan, think of convenience store woman, because that would be <laughs> I think that would be a little bit scary. Um, it is one side to Japanese society, mm-hmm. but you need to read a few more authors to get a more well-rounded view of yeah. Japan. And because also I find that until the last two years ago, I found the mainstream Japanese author in translation was probably Marokami. Yeah, Murakami. Mm-hmm. Ah, and now obviously he is with his magical realism. That is a very, very special genre. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not a fan at all. So hence, for me, I read one of his books last year because I felt, you know, I read all those Japanese books and now mm-hmm. I still haven't read anything by him. So I felt I have to pick up something. And nice. so I did pick up Sputnik's Sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just that this magic of realism just really isn't for me. So I felt that yeah. so far when people were speaking about Japanese language, it was about him a lot, uh, Japanese right. literature. And I think this is really great now that that is changing and, and adding that there's more to it and people can read more out of Japan than only in quotes uh, Murakami. Absolutely. I I agree. People in Japan, readers in Japan are split down the middle. They love him or they hate him. So it's, yeah, I think that's, that's universal as well. Um, and, <laughs> yes. it's, and, it's, and it's just great to have more readers, more women readers, more modern readers, young readers, I mean, sorry, writers, authors joining the conversation. And for them to have these pop art flashy covers, I think that, those are helping to, to take Japan out of the old Kyoto kind of castle and shrine and yeah and that like that's that's one culture that once you start reading into it oh it's it's so deep and it's so interesting it's mm-hmm. fascinating but there's also just the techno Tokyo <laughs> the techno Japan <laughs> that's just super modern and and super crazy and and people are wild and creative and hilarious and chatty and they're they're both Japan and I think it's great to have all of these authors who are able to talk about both that is so interesting that you're saying that because Asleep is just a white cover with mm-hmm. what I'm assuming are the Japanese characters for Asleep um, mm, yes. on it in purple. So it's a very, very simple cover. And if you go to your Instagram account, there's a lot of those books that really have, it's almost just white and some little bit writing on the cover and that's about it. And that somehow to me speaks a lot to the Marie Kondo Japan, which is, you know, have nothing anywhere and just straight lines uh, and, and, right. and emptiness but yeah mm-hmm. that, it's true there is the crazy Tokyo manga world in a way as well mm-hmm. and Penguin for instance brought out this collection I think of six novellas by various Japanese authors and right, they I are all that. very colorful and in your face I actually had written down a, a question where I was like are all book covers in Japan white and beige <laughs> <laughs> and minimal and white yeah. and beautiful <laughs> yeah that's so interesting I think when people think of Japan, they think of either that or the robots and the manga. And And so it's so extreme, but most of the people are a mix of all of those things. 
So they mm-hmm. may have this serenity and, you know, in parts of their lives while they're on their phone and they're in traffic and they're listening to their iPhones and they're texting at the same time and they're talking to Siri and they're doing this. And so it's, it's all yeah. of it. When you come to Japan, some people might be disappointed because it's not as serene as they thought, or others might be disappointed because it's not as high tech as they thought. Yeah, Japan is constantly evolving. And I think some people are fighting change and some people are promoting it. And so,、oh. yeah, it's a fight like anywhere, I think. But do you feel that Japanese culture is suddenly being picked up internationally by a lot of people as a point of interest? Again, Marie Kondo, basically how you tidy up your home. Do you feel that that is something that, for instance, in the US has been picked up a lot lately? I think Marie Kondo played an enormous role in that. The fact that she has her television show and she speaks Japanese、hmm. and she has a wonderful translator. And it's just. A normal thing that to have people speaking different languages but be brilliant at what、yeah. they do. And so to, to show people that, oh wow, people who don't speak English are actually brilliant at things and <laughs> they can, they're, they're great writers and they're great at, at what they do and they're professionals and they're artists and they're creatives and I think, and they're baseball players and they're in different, all different genres. And so I, I don't know that it's Japan. So much as just with streaming and people being more exposed to subtitled movies and TV, people are becoming more familiar and used to seeing、mm-hmm. these things. And I wonder if that's making it more non American content on the map for、yeah. Americans specific,、yeah. specifically. I don't think it's Japan necessarily. Japan is not becoming the topic of conversation. I think it's international,、mm-hmm. I think, more. Um, yeah, maybe it's not Japan only, but I do find East Asia also now with the Academy Awards, everything that comes out of South Korea in terms of K pop and K drama,、mm-hmm. et cetera. So this has become such a thing over the last five years or、mm-hmm. something. And I agree with you in terms of you know, Netflix being a great way of just making it accessible. If you go a decade back, you just didn't see any of that on TV.、Mm-hmm. But now, thanks to Netflix, all of that is accessible. But also, I find like, people are more. We're talking about it, and、mm-hmm. for instance, the book Pachinko that came、mm-hmm. out now,、yeah. I think,、yeah. what is it, three years ago or something, just got so much press internationally. Yeah, I definitely do believe it's, it's more, more writers are, are writing about things that other people might not be familiar with. They're doing it loud, loudly and with pride, and, and that I think is, is so important. Yeah. And so, to, to be able to share any of that, some of that, any of that with the rest of the world, I think is. Is always, I'm always、um, a great fan of that. And you know, that's where translation comes in when it's done well and it's done kind of seamlessly. I think it gives not just a more accurate portrayal, but it, it is more involving and it involves and includes more people and invites more people to join in. So、yeah. I think translation is key. And I should say that the translator for Marie Kondo is interpreter. <laughs> I was translators for the written word and interpreters for the spoken word. I should、yeah. know this and done this myself, but I, I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> Steph here. I just wanted to pop in and tell you some information that you may not already know about the GeoPets podcast and specifically about my podcasting projects. That extend beyond geopaths, believe it or not. First and foremost, at stephfuccio.com, S T E P H F U C C I O, you can see all of the things I'm about to talk to you about. There's podcast events and groups, there's groups for listeners and podcasters. Also, we've got Pod Rev Day, which is Podcast Review Day. Now, if you're a podcast listener and you love podcasts, but you always forget to tell the podcasters what you think about their projects, Pod Rev Day is for you. It's on the 8th of every month, and the rest Of the information, you're going to have to go to stephfuccio.com and click on Pod Rev Day to find out. To support the podcast, we have a support page with affiliates. We also have a buy me a coffee thing if you ever want to buy me a coffee. That's all on there. I have affiliates that will help you if you're a podcaster. I have affiliate links that'll help you if you're an expat, especially right now, American expat. I hope to build those up to include more stuff. There's also a contact page where you, you can leave me a typed message or you can leave me a A voice message on SpeakPipe. So, however you spend your time on stephfuccio.com, I'm excited that you're listening and I'm excited that you will go over to the website and check these things out. And 
hopefully pass it on to someone else that you think might be interested. So all of that is at stephfuccio.com. There's more, but I just wanted to give you a quick overview. If you haven't been to my website, I'm pretty excited about the podcasting related things that we're doing, and I hope that you get involved. You can try and just forget it, or you can change it for a mile. A very personal question, but that you met somebody Japanese, is that a complete coincidence or is that you were very much involved in the Japanese community or, or something like that? No, that was a complete unexpected encounter. I was not <laughs> planning on it whatsoever. I was My plan was to stay in New York or move back to LA, but to stay in the States where my family is. My family and I were, were all very close. So it was not part of the plan to be moving to Tokyo, but he happened to be in New York on a work trip. Okay. And he was there for about three weeks and we met then and we kind of kept in touch and it was a long distance email relationship for a long time. Wow. <laughs> and then after, yeah, about two years of back and forth meeting here and there, we decided to take it to the next step, next level. And so you're imagining staying in Tokyo now for the foreseeable future or for good? Or are you shifting forth and back, you think? It is right now back and forth. We do talk about moving back to the States eventually. Mm -hmm. But I think at this point in our lives, both of our lives, our work lives, professional lives, and personal, I really enjoy living here. Yeah. So I think just for the time being, this is, this is great. But I wouldn't be able to live in Tokyo if I didn't have LA <laughs> to go home to, which I do several okay. times a year. For months at a time. So you moved to the States when you were four. Now, mm -hmm. do you remember anything from before that in Japan? No. My, my life begins at four. Oh. <laughs> it, begins at the, it begins at the YMCA in San Pedro, California. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't remember anything before that. So when my mom comes to Japan, she'll visit. She'll take me to the old nursery school that I attended before we moved to LA or the old, the apartment building, it's yeah. not there anymore, but they would say, yes, this is where you grew up. And we used to walk along these cherry blossom lined roads and, and I wouldn't, I don't understand any of that or I don't remember <laughs> any of that, but there's a, a strange familiarity. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's uh -huh. something about Tokyo that feels familiar. I think it's just from my parents, their stories and uh -huh. stories, you know, from my grandparents and things like that. So what do you think makes you an American? And is there anything in you that makes you a Japanese? Yeah, this is something that I've thought about since for as long as I can remember. I do consider myself more American in my thinking. I was educated completely in America. Mm -hmm. I spend most of my time here, even in Japan, listening to and watching and following American news and podcasts and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think What makes me American is being open and pretty straightforward and expressing how we feel. And as opposed to in Japan, where you're supposed to kind of just read the room and everyone seems <laughs> to understand what the other person is thinking. And, and as a foreigner, you walk in, I feel like I've heard this said a lot that foreigners, when they come to Japan, they just feel like a bull in a china shop. And I, I completely <laughs> understand that. You feel like you're the only person in the room who does not know what is going on. There are a million <laughs> conversations going on, nonverbal communication, everything that you just have no clue about. Yes. I do feel that there was a great lesson in nuance and, <laughs> and depth and emotion that's not necessarily expressed but you're supposed to kind of just sense it and there is Ooh. some there is something profound about it the more you start to see these things and sense them and I think the reason why I've started to be able to pick up on some of those things is because I read a lot of Japanese literature a lot of mm -hmm. modern Japanese literature and that's basically my textbook when I don't understand what someone is thinking <laughs> or feeling I'll read that and it'll express how this wonderful wonderland of thoughts and everything going on in this person's head. And I realized, oh, okay, so there is something behind that. <laughs> and there's probably more than what I as an American might even think to think of. So the communication here is because it's not in your face, there's a depth to it. And you kind of learn to really look, I think, and listen and watch out for clues. Okay. While I was basically researching Japanese literature, etc., I came across sort of a guideline on how to bow because mm. that's the main respectful greeting method and mm -hmm. the different angles you should take depending on what you're trying to communicate. You know, are you just 
meeting a friend's mom, then it's a 10% angle. Are you meeting somebody <laughs> very serious? It's 20% angle. But right, then when right. you want to apologize or something, you really go full 45 degrees. And uh -huh, I, uh -huh. I was so impressed because quite frankly, I would constantly think about, okay, am I at the right angle? Am I offending somebody just by, <laughs> you know, bowing too much or too little? <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah. I think if you live in the corporate world today, I think there's still a lot of bowing. That just happens naturally. It's kind of like a handshake. It's not anything that people really think about. Yeah, it's when you meet someone and you say, nice to meet you, and you put out your hand and they take it and you shake, or in other cultures, you hug or you, you kiss. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's second nature. So people don't go around saying, okay, this person is a 45 degree and this person is a 10 degree. <laughs> um, but I think that's still a lot of bowing still happens in the corporate world. But in my personal life, I can't remember the last time I bowed. I just don't, oh, okay. you don't, you don't have to bow to every, <laughs> every person you meet on the street <laughs> or every person you meet on the street or even neighbors or, you know, we're, we're friendly. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're not friendly. It just means that a, a wave or a, you know, a yeah. how's it going? That's, that's just as good. I completely see that. However, I found throughout my expert life, I met a lot of Americans and they do seem to get physically very quickly, not in a romantic way, but purely if you meet. And even if you meet a complete stranger, if you have a conversation over, let's say, half an hour, by the end of this conversation, you're likely to hug. To when you say goodbye now right. that's already for me as a german that's okay but that's already quite quick uh, and i could right. imagine just like seeing the japanese i don't see that going really well with the culture right oh that's that's funny i i get that a lot i i do a lot of hugging but obviously not when i've just met a person but if they're friends or someone that i've met several times and have gotten to know I'll, I'll give them a hug but I'll, I'll do it in a playful way like this is how we do it in America <laughs> let's hug and I'll make a big production out of it so so they can laugh and enjoy but I don't see two Japanese people hugging for no reason okay <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to say hi or bye unless it's if their two friends haven't seen each other for a long time of course they're not gonna go up to each other and bow they'll go up to each other and, and engulf each other in big hugs I think I have to bring that up just now because you mentioned that you're obviously very much still into American pop culture, etc. Have you heard of the series Queer Eye? Of course. Is, huh? yes. and so Queer Eye, just for everybody who doesn't know, is a Netflix series with five gay guys who go and make over homes and lives of various usually American people. But they did have a season, a short season in Japan as well. Did you see that? I did not. I have not. I, I will. I've seen the advertisements for it everywhere. So I, yeah, I look forward to it. This is really something that I was thinking about now, just because they come in and hug everything and everybody they can find. <laughs> they have an elderly woman and she was really like stuck still. The first was like, oh my God, what's happening? And mm -hmm. so this is really what I'm imagining between the Americans and Japanese. I think secretly Japanese people love it when people come and hug them, scoop them up in a big bear hug. And I think they, it's not something, they're not revolted by it or anything. No. I think they enjoy it. They would be more alarmed if a Japanese person came up to them <laughs> and, <laughs> and hugged them. So a lot of the societal rules in Japan, I feel, are so interesting because some things are allowed if it's between a Japanese person and a foreigner. Some okay. things, things are allowed if it's You know, like the hug, if a foreigner or someone who is not Japanese comes in and hugs someone, then no one thinks anything of it. Huh. Or if someone, a non-Japanese person is, has a drink on the train and is drinking it, no Japanese person is going to go and tell him to, or her to, you know, take that drink out. But if you're a Japanese person, you're not supposed to eat or drink on the train and you should know that. Huh, so if you are, you're going to have a couple of people glancing at you, glancing your way. So there are a lot of rules that Japanese people kind of put on themselves mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily expect everyone who comes to japan i don't think to follow those rules now but you you are born to japanese parents so you look mm -hmm. from the outside japanese mm -hmm. now, so if you're just standing in a train and let's say you would eat or drink something everybody else yeah. would assume you're japanese have you encountered yeah. sort of issues or situations they where Yeah, they would absolutely assume that I was clueless. And because I look, I do, I look Japanese. My name is Yuki. Um, I, speak, I speak Japanese fluently. So unless you got to know me a little better, you would never know. 
And mostly I've learned to kind of play along. I'm not out to prove a point by having a drink on the, on the train. <laughs> but if I'm, but at the same time, I'm not so overly careful that I'm not able to do what I want. Little things I always joke, but Japanese women are, you know, they're perfectly made up wherever they go to the supermarket, to the convenience store. And I remember just being makeup free all day, all week when on vacation, because that's just what you do. <laughs> you know, no one comes up to you and says, oh, you have no makeup on. How dare you? But you just <laughs> kind of feel like, okay, I should either cover up or, or put some makeup on just for me to feel comfortable. Okay. So that's the, yeah. So nothing, I've never had anyone come up to me and accuse me of anything, but I do feel myself making sure that I don't, I'm not doing anything out of place or mm-hmm, out of place. Yeah. Now you mentioned your reading life already. When did you start reading? Oh, reading, reading, reading. I have a photo or I have audio. Actually, my mom has audio of me when I was three or something reciting a Japanese book to my, to my brother, my, well, my newborn brother, <laughs> but, <laughs> but she has a photo of it and I'm holding the book upside down. So I'm not, <laughs> reading I'm not reading it, but I'm reciting it and thinking that I was reading it. But I think I loved books going back to yeah that age. And then when we moved to the States, it was, it was all about, of course, the Babysitter's Club and the Ramona Quimby books and the Judy Bloom books and the all of those books. I read all of those books in elementary school. So I've always loved books. Um, when my father would come to Japan on business trips, I would ask him to buy these YA books. I would give him a list and he would have to buy these pink books with the <laughs> cute manga girls on them. And, but he brought them back because I think my parents were just they were happy with my brothers and I being exposed to any kind of Japanese. Yes. So they They were happy that we were reading Japanese at all. So overall, you think you were equally influenced by Japan and the U.S. in terms of what you read, or was it more mm, U.S.? So? Definitely more U.S., more America. I, I hadn't read any Japanese literature of the classic, the literary, mm -hmm. the ones that everyone should know. I haven't, I'd never been exposed to those, so I'd never read those. It's only in the past couple of years since I started the Book Nerd Tokyo account that I thought, oh, you know, I should probably have at least a basic understanding of these books because I get a lot of questions. Obviously, I asked for it with a name like Book Nerd. A, a lot of people just asking me for recommendations on Japanese literature and what do I think of Mishima and what's my favorite Kawabata? And I'm just like, oh, God, I should, I should at let least... Let me quickly check. Yeah, yeah. Let me quickly check my Google and I'll get back to you. So definitely, definitely American literature because of what we read in schools. Mm -hmm. we're, we're made to read the classics in school, so... Yeah, I did grow up reading those. And then I think I feel like I'm educating myself right now as an adult on Japanese literature. But I'm assuming that's also easier being in Japan because just oh, the yes. accessibility, obviously, of books is so much better and bigger. Yes, yes. If I were not living in Tokyo, I think I would have gone my entire life happily without knowing any of this Japanese literature. But I do read a lot of modern novels. So modern novelists and novels and new releases and being part of the ongoing conversation now, I think that's something that is really intriguing to me. And that's something that you can only experience when you live in Tokyo and you can go to the bookstores and the book signings and yes. the and read the publications that are just out and the articles that everyone's talking about. And yeah, I think that's the part of the reading life that I really enjoy. Yes, and I think you had just recently a post based on the Times of Japan, was it? That spoke about this new wave of Japanese literature. And I think with that based on the book, which got a lot of press the last couple of years, which is Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka mm -hmm. Murata. I think I, I want to leave our listeners with the idea that please pick up Kitchen. It's such a beautiful book. <laughs> Every time I read it, and I'm really not a person who rereads books a lot, but I mm -hmm. read it three times in the last nine months. So oh, wow. and every time I finish it, I'm feeling so uplifted and positive mm -hmm. and sort of, yay, the world is actually a good place. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's just quiet. Um, it's, it's a quiet kind of confidant, someone that you can have a long one-on-one -on -one chat with about yeah. your deepest, darkest moments, I think. And it doesn't expect anything in return. And yeah, I know that it saved me on several occasions. Oh, wow. 
Banana Yoshimoto has written other books as well by now. Is that your favorite of hers? Would you recommend another one of mm. her books? She is 55 years old now. And last year, I think she released four books, oh four or five books. So she is still writing up a storm. I do love Kitchen, but I think in every season of my own life, there was a book of hers that just struck me down. And I, Shimokitazawa, um, I think it's called Moshimoshi in English. Mm-hmm. Again, it's about a young woman who has lost her father and she lives in a town called Shimokitazawa in Tokyo. And this is the story of her recovery. Whereas for Mikage, it was the kitchen. Mm-hmm. For this girl, it's the town of Shimokitazawa, which is a bustling. It's a great town. I love it. And I go often. Mm-hmm. And Yoshimoto actually lives there. She grew up there. So she writes about it a lot. So I think Moshimoshi was another one that healed me when I needed to be healed. There are several more that I don't think are translated into English. Some are very odd. I don't call myself a fan of Yoshimoto just I'll read whatever she reads Mm. I think a lot of her books have turned me off like I just can't understand that that relationship I just mm, sorry I just it's just not a part of my vocabulary but other times um, she'll write these quiet novels that just kind of stay with you and and wrap you up and help you heal I think Mm -hmm. especially when you're feeling alone when you're feeling lonely when you're feeling separated from the rest of the people around you. I think her there's something really comforting about her books. Yeah, I agree. And But I also agree with what you said about every phase of your life has probably books that uh, really resonate with what you feel and what you're going through. Another book by her I read is Asleep. Mm, and yeah, I read that last year. Yeah, so it's three novella short stories. Mm-hmm. So we, and mm-hmm. the first two, I was like, oh, you know, this book is not for me. And oh, yeah. then Sleep came along and I was like, oh, my God, this is written yeah. for me. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, yes. Because it was speaking about finding your, your purpose in life in a way and mm-hmm. um, getting out there and just doing something to find that because it's not just going to come uh, knocking on your door. And mm-hmm. that really spoke to me. But I completely agree that was what my life was revolving around a lot at that time. So, again, that's probably something that counts for for a lot of authors that are not writing that much on a, on a content-driven side, but really books that you feel in a way. And mm-hmm. um, I think that you just have to find the right one. But I think she has the right one for everybody. <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. And if, if the one you're reading is, is just not for you, like I recently read Lizard by her. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, nope, not for me. Not I don't connect with any of these short stories. <laughs> so if, if that happens, you know, just... That one wasn't for you, but maybe don't write off the author completely because she might still, you know, have another one in her canon that might be for you. So she has enough books for you to be able to (laughs) find something that, that you can connect with. Invisible people keep the dream alive They're driving to work to keep the cars they drive They're driven to win and live the will to power Of every year and every day and every hour But a California minute It takes a little while Just forget it Or you can trench it for a mile Become a Hollywood star Or never go that far But if you're here then you can live it Oh yeah In the California minute So bring us your water To help us fight the fires Send us your singers and actors and other liars We'll be making the movies like we mine the gold Then it never gets old Just wait A California minute It takes a little while You can try and just forget it Or you can stretch it for a mile Become a Hollywood star But never go that far 
California Minute. 